0: This is Good Together, the podcast that inspires you to create change in the world every day. I'm your host, Laura Alexander-Wittig, CEO and founder of Brightly, the number one destination for conscious consumers around the world. At Good Together, we value the planet over perfection and believe that you can make positive things happen for the planet every day by being a conscious consumer and an informed citizen. Listen in as I chat with various experts about living and consuming responsibly. Good Together listeners. I am so excited to welcome Dr. Louis Ziska to join us on the podcast. Um, And the reason why I'm so excited is because it is currently allergy season and Dr. Ziska is quite the expert in the space. Um, At time of recording, I myself am dealing with allergies like most of you probably are. Um, And the reason why we wanted to talk about this on the Good Together podcast is we read a recent report that said that allergy season is actually said to be earlier, longer, and worse all due to climate change and greenhouse gas emissions. So um, today I wanted to welcome Dr. Louis Ziska to the podcast. He's an associate professor in the environmental health sciences at the Mailman School of Public Health at Columbia University and was part of this report that I just mentioned. So welcome, Dr. Ziska. I wonder if you can do a brief intro of yourself and your background.
1: Uh, Yes, my name is Lou Ziska. I am an associate professor here at uh, Columbia University. Uh, Prior to coming here, I was about 25 years with the U.S. Department of Agriculture, and I've spent a great deal of my research looking at sort of the nexus between global climate change, plant biology, and public health. And part of that nexus includes looking at changes in allergenic pollen and how those changes are being influenced by uh, both rising carbon dioxide and changes in the climate
0: i mean that that is quite a way to you know attack the problem I'd say, and I'd also bet that you like most of us, probably suffer from a little bit of seasonal allergy woes. would that be uh, correct?
1: <laughs> you would be absolutely correct i I study quite uh suffer quite a bit uh, from seasonal allergies uh, allergic rhinitis i've had uh times when it's gotten induced asthma as a result. And I always carry my inhaler with me wherever I go.
0: So it's something that obviously is a very personal problem to you as it is to me. And I would say most of us, um, and actually, you know, I, I think what, what has been so fascinating to me as I you know dug into the report and as I really thought about, um, you know, allergy season in general, it's something that we, I think have been conditioned to just live with. Right. And um, we have a variety of ways that we can cope with our allergies, such as medications or, you know, in some extreme instances, possibly moving to different parts of the world. Um, But I would say overall, um, what really struck uh, really struck a chord with me as I was reading this report was, you know, the, the situation has gotten worse in recent times, and it's not going to get much better based on what we're, we're currently facing with the climate. And so I wonder if we can talk a little bit about, um, you know, if you can kind of give give the listeners a really brief overview about what your report found, and really maybe how you, you went about the methodology would be fascinating.
1: Um, I'll certainly try. Um, being a scientist, however, just keep in mind that I, I like to talk. So, uh, I <laughs> That's it fine.
0: It. You're on a podcast. <laughs> I'll try yes. to
1: make it as short and to the point as I can. Um, basically, it's pretty straightforward. Uh, we know that carbon dioxide is a source of carbon for make-to-make make plants grow. It's one of the resources that plants need, along with water and sunlight and nutrients. And about 90% of plants lack optimal CO2. So when you hear someone will say CO2 is plant food, and yes, but it's also plant food for poison ivy. It's also plant food for um, things that produce ragweed and other things. So one of the things we've been looking at is the role that recent and future changes in CO2 will mean in terms of plant production uh, for these allergenic species and how much more pollen that they will produce. And of course, the 12-ton the T-Rex in the room is climate change. And what we're seeing with that are warmer winters, uh, earlier uh, springs, where the last frost might, if it was, was occurring in April, now it might be occurring in March. Uh, if you had uh, frosts in the fall, if they were happening in September, well, now they're happening in October. And all of this is to say there are two main takeaways uh, in terms of plant-based allergens. The first one is you're being exposed to allergens over a longer season. Uh, The number of frost-free days from spring to fall is now increasing. And so you're going to be uh, having a longer experience with those pollen. The other issue is that more of the pollen is being produced. As plants respond to warmer temperatures and more carbon dioxide, We see increases in the amount of pollen that are occurring, and then you have to breathe in as well. There's a third issue that is somewhat tentative, and that has to do with CO2 itself, whether or not it is affecting the chemistry of the pollen in such a way that the pollen may be becoming more allergenic. There have been two published studies on that, one for ragweed, one for oak, uh, but both studies suggest that that may also be occurring. Now, there's a postscript to this, and that has to do with molds. What we're seeing in some locations, particularly that are warmer and wetter uh, and also especially after a, a severe storm, is that molds can grow and flourish and molds are also a source th- through spores that they produce. those spores can also become highly allergenic,
0: yeah, I mean, in general, I think you know those three buckets that you identified are so interesting of course, each one of them you know has very, um, you know, different implications. But to me, I would say like from the perspective of somebody who is not a scientist and is just, you know, obviously casually observing what's going on. I mean, number one, I definitely feel like I've observed more pollen of the same type of plant, right? Like I, I feel like we've had multiple times recently, um, or in the past few years where you come out and your car is just like covered in it. And I was like, gosh, I really don't know if I remember this happening growing up. Um, but the thing that I that is really interesting to me also is the, the the last point that you made about um you know pollen perhaps becoming more potent and the addition potentially of mold now playing a role is, is very interesting. And the reason why I'm I I like us to dig into both of those things as well, listeners, is number one, if you've ever gone to um, a specialist to be tested for allergies, um so it's quite a quite an ordeal. <laughs> um, I also suffer from allergic rhinitis, meaning I, I have a lot of sinus problems um, that, that stem from being triggered by allergies. And I remember, you know, my doctor and I worked through as much as we could. And finally, the doctor said, okay, well, why don't you go get fully allergy tested? So there's a variety of ways to do it, but none of them are overly pleasant. Um, and the thing that I remember coming out of that testing was thinking, wow, okay, there's definitely some things that irritate me more than others. But if you consider the wide scope of, of um, you know, things that can be cho- uh, you know, classified as irritants to somebody, it's actually pretty large. So when I made that comment earlier about, well, maybe people are going to move different places, to me, it sounds like there's not a lot of places you can escape what we're talking about. Would that be right, Dr. Siska? <laughs> um,
1: they're, they're not. Uh, the, some of the places that you might go to are places where it's very dry or very cold. Uh, that they don't support the kind of plant life that would be associated with pollen production. That, yes. That's certainly a possibility, but it's probably not the best possibility if you like greenery,
0: Antarctica, and you
1: like, and like <laughs> nature. That's, right. that's
0: uh, right. As
1: as far as irritants go, I, I'm still wait, I'm still waiting for one for coworkers, but but so far that's not <laughs> that's not happened.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, it's it's one of those things where, um, you know, when we hear about the problem we feel a little bit validated by, by what we ourselves are seeing going on from a personal perspective. And so when we talk about, um, you know, maybe those three buckets that you identified, like was there anything that stood out to you in your experience of, um, you know, of being in this space for so long, was there anything that stood out to you as particularly surprising that came out of the study?
1: I think the thing that was really surprising was how, how general it is. It wasn't just when we started, we were looking at it from a kind of a localized area uh, around Baltimore. Um, but as we did a deeper dive, it was clear that this was happening both uh, not only in our state, but also at the continental level. And eventually we were seeing it for the Northern Hemisphere as well. We're trying now to look at what's happening in the Southern Hemisphere. Uh, there are fewer Pollen County stations there. Uh, and very different species that are associated with with pollen, uh, but that's also something that we'd be interested in, and are trying to pursue that line of wow. uh, research as well.
0: Yeah, I mean that, that's fascinating, and I I think in general, from from my perspective too, another thing that stood out to me, in addition to like the broad scale and scope of what we're talking about, is also the amount of people that are affected. So, um, you know. According to the CDC in the U.S., about one quarter of adults and 20 percent of children in the United States are affected by allergies. Um, And I think that to me seems a little bit low, but we'll go with that. Um, And, you know, unfortunately, um, there's just so many different health implications and and complications that can come from this problem. And oftentimes when we talk about different um, topics related to climate change or sustainability on this podcast, People occasionally will make the comment to me about these being nice to haves, or you know, oh, if you can do better, then do what you'd like to do. But in in instances where we're talking about our health being directly impacted, to me, the urgency um, is it just can't be um, overstated. So I'm curious to know a little bit about um, you know, as you went about um, the course your study, and you you know found some of these findings. um, Was there anything that you know really made an impression on you that that could be done from a consumer perspective, or, you know, maybe we can talk a little bit about like, now that we know the problem exists and that it's getting worse, like what are your general recommendations coming out of this study?
1: In terms of um, treating or avoiding or. Well, we can talk about it pain? a few
0: ways. Yeah. I mean, maybe we talk about it from like, perhaps the, yes, maybe the initial um, uh, Portion that people can do on their own, such as treating or um, any kind of um, recommendations you might have from that perspective. And then maybe we can talk a little bit about some of these systemic changes that that could be interesting.
1: I I think from a very practical point of view, um, trying to stay indoors, obviously, when there's a lot of pollen in the air is good. Um, Don't hang your clothes out on the line Uh uh, if it's a high pollen day. Um uh, try to take a shower or wash yourself off when you come in from outdoors. Uh, check your air handling system. Often what what occurs is that you don't turn your AC on until June. Yep. And then a lot of things can accumulate in there over time. Okay. So that when they first come on, you can be absolutely blasted uh, with a lot of different allergens, both from from pollen, but also, of course, from from spores and molds. So, those are sort of the the pragmatic uh, ones in terms of systematics, I think that that's a that's a much harder issue to get to, yeah, uh, in the sense of what can I do to make uh, climate change uh, go away? um, as it turns out, there's actually quite a bit you can do at the individual level, and that ranges from being politically active to watching the kinds of food that you eat. Um, it turns out that many of the foods that are the worst for you have a very high carbon signature. And if I just switch uh, from just eating beef to eating chicken, um, that can save a tremendous amount of, of carbon. So there's a lot there. Um, and that's probably outside the scope of what, what we can do in, a, in the remaining uh, time. But I don't want people to feel hopeless. I think that they have to understand that as an individual, there is a great deal you can do to make a difference.
0: Absolutely. And I mean, the reason why we I, I kind of jumped to this was because, you know, the, I think most of us are familiar with, um, you know you know, pollen and sort of what's going on from a, you know, a natural perspective. And you've, you've really done a great job about informing us, um, you know, about some of the findings coming out of the study. And so when we think about, okay, number one, as an individual, I can do things like, you know, not going outside and, um, when it's particularly bad and and all the other, um, tips you shared, but then yes, like thinking about it from a broader perspective, I think it can be slightly overwhelming to people and sometimes potentially, um you know, slightly depressing. It's like, okay, well, I really like where I live and I want to be able to go outside and hike and and do all of these things. And so, you know... Number 1 I think what's what's fascinating about this is it really does bring the issue of climate change home. Um it is something that's directly impacting all of us around us but I also think you know when we consider allergies it becomes even more interesting. Um and you know the report like you mentioned specifically says that cutting greenhouse gas emissions is ultimately the most meaningful action to slow the rate of, of warming. Um and from an individual perspective, you're very correct. Like food waste and food consumption is a huge, huge portion of individual greenhouse gas um, emissions. Um, Of course, transportation is another one. Um, I would say with most of us, you know, we probably cut back a lot of our transportation as of late with working from home and all those things. But, you know, I I do think that it's, it's worth mentioning. And then, of course, you know, plastic production and, you know, any kind of industrial manufacturing, all those types of things, of course, do also increase emissions. So just thinking about reuse and and, and not wasting. Um, but, you know, another thing that I wanted to ask you, Dr. Ziska, was specifically around, um, you know, regional case by case, potentially, um, you know, tips that we can give people or maybe even just findings that you found. So So let's say that, like, I actually, I currently live in the Pacific Northwest. There's a lot of greenery. Um, There's obviously a lot of of, of things going on. But one um, finding that I've had is as I I travel, I might be going to a place that has, quote-unquote, less greenery. So maybe I'm going to a more desert or arid place. But my allergies still don't seem to let up too much. So I'm curious to know, you know when people ask you, oh, well, you know, I guess I just have to go to move to Antarctica. Obviously, that's not not realistic. <laughs> so are there other like regional things that people can be on the watch for or potentially like, you know, is there maybe like one common irritant that is uh, maybe more uh, plentiful in some parts of the country versus others? <laughs>
1: Uh, it, it's interesting that you bring that up because there's, if you look at specific irritants, I think one that that really stands out is ragweed. Yes. Um, it, it's interesting if you go back to the 1920s and the 1930s in New York City, where I'm currently living, um, the city actually had um, I don't know how would you describe them ragweed gangs that would go around <laughs> uh, prisoners who would go around and, and cut down ragweed that was growing on on Manhattan. Uh, right now in Switzerland, uh, talking to some of my colleagues there, if I have ragweed growing on my front lawn, you call up the, um, the administration there, the police or uh, the hospital, they will send people out to your lawn to remove the ragweed. Wow. I know. So it's, it's something that is. Really recognized, I think, by most people. We used to recognize goldenrod too, but we, we learned that goldenrod isn't really an, uh, an allergen per se. Um, but ragweed is. And to give you some sense of just how powerful it is, I'll tell you sort of a, a couple of uh, things. Uh, first of all, each uh, a normal ragweed plant can produce a billion of the bee pollen grains.
0: Wow. So One much
1: pack. pollen. It, it can produce so much pollen that actually back in the 1960s during the Cold War, the Brookhaven National Laboratories put out a a cluster of ragweed plants on uh Long Island that they used when they all flowered and they started putting pollen in there, they used that to simulate what future nuclear fallout would look like. Oh my god. So that would give you that get, I couldn't make that up. That's that will wow. give you some sense of just how much pollen uh, a group of, a cluster of ragweed plants can produce. So the other thing you need to know about the plant is it really thrives on disturbance. Okay. Um, if you have uh snow cleaning equipment, which I assume you do, not you personally, obviously, but. Sure. <laughs> if, you, if you look at where they go and if they go off road and they, they might make a uh, a curve into the grass and disturb the soil. And then you come back the following year. I will, you know, We'll bet serious money that you'll see a lot of ragweed plants going where the soil has been destroyed. Really? Yes. So when you look at land use, when you look at disruptions, new buildings, new uh, roads, whatever, that's one of the things that is almost uh, inevitable when you have that kind of disturbance is that ragweed will follow. And so if you're looking to try and make a difference as uh, a weed warrior, if you will, (laughs) <laughs> then this is something that I think it would be very interesting to try and follow up on is to, you know, keep it, keep track of what's happening with ragweed. But in fairness, you could keep track of a number of things. What's happening is that as the climate warms things that uh, insects and, and weeds and, and uh, bacteria and other things that had not been seen previously are now starting to be seen. So yeah, if you have tick yeah, and exactly. Then you have tick migration happening in the northeast. Uh, you have kudzu, which is an invasive vine, now showing up in Oregon. Mm. Um, there's a lot going on with the environment that isn't really captured in the the sort of icons of climate change, like polar bears. Um, I mean, I'm, I feel sympathetic for polar bears. Don't misunderstand me, but that is sort of difficult for the average person to relate to climate change by looking at a polar bear.
0: Yeah. Uh,
1: however, you can relate to it if you're sneezing your head off. So that's sorry, I'll I'll stop there.
0: No, no, that's fine. No, I it's it's fascinating. And actually um I was gonna mention ragweed because I know that it really is that top irritant. And I and I'd say um my my brother got married last October in Texas. And so October in Texas is still very warm. And he mentioned he actually suffers very uh, poorly from uh, seasonal allergies and he said it's the most beautiful venue but there's a bunch of ragweed around it so like we're going to really limit you know the amount of time we spend outside you know because it's just it's 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 rough um and it was i mean it was just like this field of yellow and i'm i'm so interested to to learn more about what you 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 mention about the the disturbance because i think you know as we consider the impact that our industrialization or just general urbanization has had on the environment. There's so many different vectors, but even thinking about things like, you know, disturbing soil, which then increases uh, potential ragweed is, is so interesting. Um, I'm curious to know too, like, so are there any sort of, in addition to us, like going and pulling out ragweed, like with our hands, like there anything that, that uh, are any um, like things that are happening on the natural end of things to stop ragweed? Like, do are there certain animals that eat it, or is there um, any kind of like natural mitigation going on, or is it pretty much unchecked?
1: Um, it it really is related back to disturbance. The best way to control it is to make sure that the soil that you have will stay undisturbed for a longer, like three or four years. And what happens is that that the vegetation will build up in such a way when it's not disturbed that ragweed will no longer be able to get a, a foothold there. Um so if you see it, you obviously want to remove it. It's a pretty plant. Um it's I I had an experience once where uh I was giving some flowers to someone and I recognized I looked down at the bouquet and I thought that looks like ragweed and it was so being being of botanical mind, um So it's something that you want to control where where you see it, Uh, but the best way to control it is through, uh, by natural means, is to make sure that you have other things that are growing there and that those things stay there, that they stay there for a long time. Ragweed is an annual plant, so it has a season, it comes, it flowers, it dies, uh, it produces a ton of seed, but if you can keep it from seeding, uh, that's always a, a plus. There's an old adage in, uh, in the botanical world that says that one one year's seeding equals seven years weeding. So if you have a weed in your garden and it flowers, uh, you're going to have to be removing it for at least seven years more. In the case of ragweed, that doesn't really apply. If you can get rid of it for the first year, uh, usually it won't come back.
0: Wow. I mean, I think that's just, it's it's fascinating and I think it's something that's important for us all to be on the lookout for. So yes, I mean, listeners will obviously include photos of ragweed and, and things of that nature in our in our uh, show notes, but yes, I kind of like the concept of um, becoming a weed warrior, as you said Dr. Siska. It's very interesting I mean, at the very least you could look at your immediate surroundings, right? Like if you happen to be, you know, in a home that has a backyard you, or something yes, like that, you can.
1: right? Um, this, just one word of caution, uh, like, like many weeds it isn't just one kind of ragweed. There are a lot of different uh, species. And so you have everything from western ragweed to giant ragweed. And each of the pollen, the kinds of pollen that are produced are slightly different in terms of how much of an allergenic response they produce. Common ragweed is probably the worst. But uh, it's not hard to find. You can Google any of these things, see what they look like, um, and then have a chance to, to take them on uh, based on what what you've observed.
0: And once you have, you know, grabbed it out of the ground, what's the best way to dispose of it? I mean, is it something that if you just lay on top of your, uh, you know, lawn, I would imagine it's going to continue to spread. Is that correct?
1: Um, Once you pull it out, it will die. The tip is to try and do that before it flowers. And one of the things that's unique about ragweed is it's what's called a short day plant. It will not flower until the days get shorter. So okay. it will only start to flower after June 21st, which is the longest day of the year. So usually by the end of August to uh, October, until the first frost, actually, uh, it will keep on flowering. So as long as you get it before the time, early on is best um, in terms of destroying it. If it does have uh, seeds on it, then the best thing to do is to put it into a bag, put it somewhere where it can't. those seeds can't get back to the ground.
0: Okay. Well, I mean, that, that's so interesting. (laughs) Who knew that it would be so fascinating to talk about weeds, but I mean, truly though, it is something that like we keep saying, it it affects all of us more than we can even think. Um, And so Dr. Ziska, you know, we, I mean, I can't believe we've almost come up on time. Um, You know, we could probably get into many other things, but I'm curious to know, was there anything else in the study that you feel like we didn't, um, didn't talk about in the podcast that you feel like people really need to know, or do you feel like we covered everything?
1: I think we covered most of the, almost everything. I think there is one topic that relates to allergies and the change in climate that we know a little bit about, but we'd like to know more. And that has to do with uh, food allergies. We know that changes in carbon dioxide, changes in temperature will affect how plants grow, including uh, the plants that we eat. But one of the questions we have is how does that in turn affect the allergic potential or the allergenic potential of some of those plants? So we published a study, the um, only one I've seen, unfortunately, looking at a variety of peanut, which showed that more CO2 was, in fact, causing the, the uh, peanut to become more uh, allergic. Um, but there's, that's, that's not to say that's the be-all and end-all by any stretch, but it's something, it's an aspect, I think, when it comes to allergies that we really need to know more about.
0: I, I totally agree. And actually, this is something I um, had my first child about a year and a half ago, and um, I've been thinking a lot about, you know, allergens in food, just like you mentioned, and thinking about how do I prevent any type of these allergies with her? And of course, there's, you know, theories and, you know, some studies that say, yes, like, Exposing children earlier on to certain things can help, but there's also not a ton of evidence for that too. So it, it suffices to say that um, it's it's a bit scary to think about, especially when you hear about stories of, of folks that are just so allergic to to you know peanuts, for instance, like you just mentioned. Um, I, I'm I'm really curious to hear more about that too. So it's fascinating to think that you know there there's a potential link here, right?
1: Exactly, and it would be really nice to to do a granular. Um, uh exploration of what that link might be and how prevalent is it
0: yes well if that starts uh, going going off you'd let me know because <laughs> i, I want to know you you've got my I, contact I, okay. information
1: you I, let me I know i'll do my best
0: <laughs> that's right well um dr ziska this has been such an interesting conversation and so what i typically like to do with all of our guests um is ask them a similar question. Um, so sometimes it's the same one, but it, it varies from episode to episode. But I'm curious to know, like, from where you're sitting, so either, you know, um, from a personal perspective or professional perspective, what is exciting you the most about what you're seeing um, happening in the ethical and sustainable living movement right now?
1: In, in ethical and sustainable?
0: Well, I mean, you know you could even talk about um you know in a sustainability movement in general, like sort of where what you're what you're witnessing
1: i i think the the probably the most exciting thing in is really from a food perspective, and that is I think that people are really becoming more aware of what it is that they're consuming from a from a food um, uh context, and what that means in terms both of their health but also in terms of what it means for Uh, carbon mitigate, carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gas mitigation. Um, I think that in the last couple of years, I haven't become full vegan, but I've certainly changed my diet to cut back on on meat. Um, And I think that's made me a little bit healthier and a little bit wiser. I still have a hot dog at the ballgame, though. Don't tell anyone. (laughs) Um, There you go. But I'm trying. I'm trying to make a difference in that. And I think that That's one of the things that, as I mentioned, we can do on a personal level that will both help the environment, but also help uh, in terms of our health. And I think that's something that I find really exciting is that awareness of folks with respect to what they're consuming and how they're consuming their food, uh, I think is very important.
0: Absolutely. Well, I, I, I couldn't think of something that's more appropriate to end on, um, as I sit here and consider my next, my lunch. No, I'm just kidding. But, um, you know, in general, I think you're absolutely right. There is such a, such a, um, exciting movement going on and people just rethinking what we're eating and like you mentioned you can have a hot dog at the ball game every once in a while like that that is totally part of being you know the human experience um but thinking more about like meatless swaps is fascinating and listeners if you're curious my favorite meatless swap right now is that viral tiktok feta pasta that thing is the easiest thing it's meatless I wouldn't say it's not vegan meatless though so good check it out Well, anyway, Dr. Ziska, thank you so much for joining us. Um, Really appreciated the conversation.
1: Thank you so much. I really, really had a lot of fun. Thank you.
0: joining us on another episode of Good Together. To get show notes and more, head to brightly.eco podcast. Finally, don't forget to join in on the conversation with us on social, where I know you can find us at brightly.eco. Don't forget, we're all on this journey together, so have fun putting the planet first and stay curious.